Welcome to the C Word, a conservator's podcast. Today we're talking about filming at heritage locations. I'm Jen Mathiasen, an objects conservator based in Kimarlandshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. Hey guys, welcome back to the Hi. show. Season eight, I season know. eight, season eight. <laughs> It's immense. Isn't it amazing? So, so good. It is. And this is the first intro you've done with your new location. It is. So, yeah, don't freak out anyone. I did just say that I'm not in South Yorkshire anymore. So that, that's that's an update. So, yeah, moving house in a pandemic, actually not a great idea. <laughs> you know what? We got through it and here I am and I'm sitting in a room full of laundry because we only got wardrobes like yesterday. So everything's everywhere but that's just the nature of moving house isn't it so um that's fun but eventually this this room will be some sort of studio and hopefully i can have people in the studio (laughs) it's so exciting yes moved house tick new season tick and here we are here we are yes i thought we would i remember saying at the start of last season season seven talking about how we were just going to have to get through recording from a distance uh, for just this season and next season in the autumn <laughs> yeah. it'll be all different and we'll be coming back and it'll be totally fine and i'll be visiting you and all of this um that's just the same <laughs> it's just exactly the same yeah. except we can now go and get coffee <laughs> and yes. go to the pub that's the yeah. only difference pretty much <laughs> But we're working on it. It's it's going to get there eventually. But yeah, so today we've got a special guest host with us as well. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, so I'm Fee White. I work in collections care in Birmingham and I also moved during a pandemic. So Yay! right there with that on that one. Socially distanced high five. <laughs> yeah, I moved um, on the Easter weekend, actually. So I ended up moving oh, wow. in with my friends. Um, and sleeping on an airbed for about four or five weeks until I could get my stuff out of storage. Oh my which definitely God. made it interesting. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about filming at heritage locations, in museums, anything like that. To be fair, there's actually quite a bit of filming going on. It's extremely common. Yeah. I didn't really think about it because I'd not really been very involved in that sort of thing. But anything that you watch set in like an older setting it's likely to be a historic property of some description you know that's it's not usually a build set and there are so many examples of that sort of thing going on i mean i'm not actually a big fan of period dramas but that's that's (gasps) i know it's it's unacceptable i know (laughs) i know i'm sorry i'm so much more of an action girl i like things blowing up and being on fire and surely you watch gentleman jack I haven't yet. I really want to oh because, it's, because it's highly recommended to me and I would it I is. really, really do want to. Uh, I just didn't get around to it while I was on and stuff like that. So, um, but it's something I hope to catch up on. Some things like that I really do generally enjoy. <laughs> I, I don't think I tick the girly boxes of like watching a lot of Jane Austen. <laughs> oh my God, Jane Austen is so much more. We are, I'm gonna, we are gonna. <laughs> this conversation is not over. Wow, okay. We are going to have a session. All oh, right, Jesus this conversation Christ. is not over. <laughs> okay. Um, um, fair enough. I wasn't prepared for the turn this took, but okay. <laughs> all right, all right. No, that's that's good. So there's loads of different facets of this, which is not something that, uh, well, either I ever considered when I went into conservation, but also when we, you know, chatted with Fee and Jane about this as a possible um, episode topic. I didn't consider it as having so many different kind of avenues to go down. So there's the heritage locations, obviously. There's the the actual properties. And then there's also one's own studio or one's own museum Mm. that has a whole host of different things that you have to say and do and all of that. So it's really interesting. Very large topic. It is, actually. Uh, I thought uh, maybe we can start with some of our own experiences. I think I've had very limited kind of experience of this sort of thing the one thing that springs to mind is that at some point in one of my old workplaces uh, there was a music video produced at one point cool for some sort of band i don't know them and i can't remember who they are and i'm really sorry about that uh, i feel like i should link to it or something but i i have no clue however i do know that they used one of our galleries and they actually brought in are like a fake display case like one made of like entirely of like really thin perspex or something which they had one of their singers in 
for the music video and they and they did a lot of like panning around and she was trying to get out of the display case and something uh so like oh so we were very much a venue and a setting if you see what i mean and like it it was about the room being a museum gallery and kind of looking the part and then her trying to get out of a display case i don't know but it's it was <laughs> i've totally cool. done that myself <laughs> I mean, to get out of I mean, honestly, case. I have been in a display case, but I've not been actively trying to get out so much as cleaning it. <laughs> but I wasn't really involved in it. Like, I kind of heard about it afterwards and I was like, that's really cool. Oh, I like how no one risk assessed that. I mean, no, there were, <laughs> okay, no, there would have been risk assessments, but they just weren't done by anyone who had anything to do with the collection. Oh, no. I think in retrospect, I was like, but no one talk to me about like having you know dolly grips key grips i don't know what they're all called you know like big wavy things with like panning cameras and stuff near my paintings that have no glass on them uh you Oof. know that, that sort of thing right so i think in retrospect i was kind of just kind of lightly miffed that it wasn't <laughs> like seen as a thing that should have been talked about but at the same time it was a really cool result and like it was cool for us to say that hey we were in a music video that sort of thing i suppose other than that i just remember when i worked in cambridge the streets outside a lot of the museums i worked in were constantly closed because <laughs> because <laughs> someone was filming an episode of something in like the little suddenly st- accidental extra <laughs> yeah in all the little streets that you know you could easily take away like the modern signage on and stuff like that because they were just really picturesque i just remember fondly seeing a lot of emails in my inbox like Okay, so on Monday morning, you have to get into the museum via a side entrance and definitely not go down the street because it's just going to be entirely cordoned off because they're filming. Again, not really involved in it so much as it marginally impacted my way into the museum. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like a lot of the museum stuff that you were just talking about is a lot about having people working in the space. Yeah, yeah rather than using I don't know bits of it as props if you see what I mean yeah yeah, I feel like that that is quite a lot like my experience as well and I've talked a lot lot about my particular filming experience on the podcast before when I started my job my current job I nearly said it what eight seasons (laughs) and I'm still nearly telling people where I work anyway (laughs) it's probably now because everybody knows already and it's not really very interesting yeah you're incredibly (laughs) relaxed about it now (laughs) I know well Yeah, so we got this great banner in and it was very important, um, really fantastic. And it's had so much media attention Mm. that we've had to take it down to London and that sort of thing. So that was a different set of, you know, issues, which we have spoken about before, you know, the, the travel and the people working around it and all of that. I mean, mostly it's just having large film crews in my studio um, and the museum in general, finding spaces that are particularly pretty to look at, essentially. And then can we have it in here, please? Kind of thing. We had BBC Breakfast in the museum. Oh, that's cool. um, I know. In 2018. That was really cool. But a lot of people have been in the studio and the main thing is just making sure there's so much space around them there's just I've never considered there'd be so much stuff Mm. um obviously you know people need gear but I didn't consider there'd be so much like putting rolls of tape down on surfaces that (laughs) weren't going to be used and and all of that that's a really good point and something I would love to talk about like film crews what they do what how much stuff they bring in that sort of thing and yeah it's way more than people may expect if they're not used to doing filming (laughs) how much stuff do you need guys oh yeah oh dear lord we had 300 crews so it definitely got a bit out of hand at times oh my god amazing so i need to hear about your experience right now because that sounds amazing yeah so i guess i've had slightly more experience than you guys i've worked in kind of heritage stuff for six years now but kind of more in the visitor experience stuff and then i had my first experience of conservation with a filming project A one day filming project where I got left to guard rooms and was getting asked conservation questions. So that was a bit of a baptism of fire, but also a lot of fun. But yeah, and then my first actual conservation job was basically to help staff a filming project. So that was pretty fun. And that was about 300 crew, I think. Oh my God. God. It was three week shoot. Um, We had two weeks of two, three weeks of setup. Um, We had to completely decant the collection from six rooms, I think it was. My first week of that job, writing my master's dissertation in the evenings, um, (laughs) then had a week off to submit, went back for the last couple of days of set up and then was straight into three weeks of filming, two weeks of takedown and reinstating, 
open to the public for two more weeks and then shut for the winter. So it was wow. a bit of a bizarre. I think the film crew were on site for 14 weeks. It was quite quite intense. And yeah, definitely an interesting interesting experience. I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, and that's cool. one thing that I remember my line manager at the time going, I'm really impressed that you liked it. Um, <laughs> I would say the novelty wears off. One five thirty start and the novelty is not there anymore of filming. Mm, yeah, fair. I think if you get on well with the crew as well, that makes a massive, massive difference. I'm really glad to hear that you enjoyed the experience of working with the film crew and team like that. That's that's really great to hear. A bit later, I've got an interview with another conservator who also has enjoyed working, you know, with crews for filming of all sorts. I know, like, obviously the filming conservators I've worked with, I've, we've kind of quizzed them on other projects they've worked on. Yeah. As you do when you're stood around on set. And they're like, oh, it's not that exciting. And we're going, oh, you worked on that? Um, so, <laughs> and same with, like, the locations teams that I've worked with before and some of the stuff they've worked on. We were, like, looking at their IMDb's afterwards and going, wow! But, yeah, I think for us we were just like, oh, this is a nice way to see it looking different and... I've definitely watched some of the stuff back on show because quite often they put furniture in, obviously in the rooms that almost replicates your collection. Mm. So you get to then see people in period costumes sat on the furniture, kind of enjoying the house, has, yeah. how it would have been enjoyed. And that's something that we don't get to do. So I have questions. Yeah. Let's tackle one at a time because otherwise I'll get <laughs> too excited and there'll be no direction. <laughs> what i'm saying (laughs) so my first question is about the preparation of the space and i'm interested in this obviously because we've just been talking about replicas Mm. and the things that people have to do that um prop developers and scene developers i guess the people who design the set who liaise with the prop makers and and all of that I suppose the only experience I've got of that is just when I was in university at Durham, in Durham Cathedral, there was a a modern water pipe covered up with a bit of stuff that looked like brick because it was used in Harry Potter. (laughs) And that's the only thing. (laughs) That really got me thinking about the sort of things that that we need to have in historic properties now for safety and all of that. And what it is that people do to, to kind of make it not look modern Mm. and to protect the old stuff that is there. Is that a question or is that a rambling, a rambling array of statements? It's a topic. I'm going to go with it as a topic. topic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, discuss. (laughs) We had a thing where they wanted to throw a cake at the wall. Oh my God. It was a lot. We, I think the first take happened and myself and one of the locations managers went running out and the props guys were desperately hoovering up going, it's fine, it's fine. And we were just there like, no, I just want to see it. Like, we'll never be allowed to do this. So I want to see what you can do. (laughs) Um, But we had like heating grates in the floor. So they'd had to build a fake wall, which was just MDF, I think, just painted to look like stone walls um, of that corridor and just put that in front of it, but had also put mats and stuff. So there was no way anything was getting in the heating. Yeah. And actually, I think it was up for a couple of days and we'd be walking down the corridor and forget it was there, um, which (laughs) was good job. And then it was when like everyone was going, oh, well, you know, that painting that sits on the wall behind that. And we were all going, no. It was only when it came back, we were like, oh, that's where the fake bit of wall was. Um, yeah. It just blended so well and we just got used to seeing it. Um, and then the big project I worked on had loads of on-site carpenters because they had budgets. Um, so for our <laughs> dining table, they um, made a complete false top for it. Ooh. So we had loads of layers of acetary and Tyvek underneath. And it was a huge table anyway. So how they made this top, I don't know. But yeah, had that on top and then had to put reinforcements underneath it. So that, which they all built handmade so that you could, from the outside of the table, it wasn't obvious that there were all these extra supports. But it meant there was a massacre scene in the dining room, um, as you do, um, and meant that people were lying on the table. And it was strong enough then for you to do that. Wow, that's so cool. Was that decision made because it was just far too difficult to get the table out or that it was the exact kind of perfect prop as it were they wanted so many rooms Mm, ah. that we didn't have anywhere to put it Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it was too heavy and difficult to move so we took um, I think it split into a couple of different sections so I think we took one smaller section off the table and did move that but I mean that was still the size of a dining table you'd have at home so (laughs) from what I remember so I think it was probably more, uh, it was the perfect table, but there was no way we were going to let them throw sugar glass and have bodies on it, on the yeah. table. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it also meant that they covered all the other um, kind of side tables in the dining room that were screwed into the wall. 
and mm. were not coming out. Um, so I think we were like, unless you want to give us like two months, like pay for us to shut up for two months, to take all this out, maybe just cover this. Um, yeah. So it looked really good. And we did jokingly try and get them to leave them with us afterwards. Um, <laughs> just because we were like, it's so much easier not having to worry about these tables. <laughs> But yeah, it looked like you couldn't tell afterwards oh, um, when we had some volunteers come in to help with the filming. We were showing them around the sets and they didn't believe us that they weren't the actual tables. Wow. Um, which was really good. So The thing that strikes me with this is that there's a difference between what Jenny's talking about with the, we want to do fun things in the gallery space. Can we do them? Display cases, musicians, that sort of thing. And there isn't all, there might be money involved, but there isn't all that much kind of time for setup or expertise for setup from the side of the hirer of the space. Good point, yeah. But what Fee's mm. talking about is like yeah. really extensive expertise in using historic prop- properties. It sounds like they are just so used to using spaces and making things safe and anticipating the things that the collections care staff are going to say and the things that might or might not be possible to to do so i'm saying this because i'm surprised at how fuss free it sounds and i don't know whether it is in practice but it definitely sounds like quite a lot of the fuss has already happened and Mm. that they're just going all right yeah so we know that if we need to use this historic place we probably need to create false walls we probably need to do this that or whatever do you think that's accurate yeah i mean i don't know how much had gone on before i got there because obviously everything was very much underway by the time i got there i know that it was not all as nice and chaos-free as that sounds. Um, there was, ah. there was uh, <laughs> one time where they weren't allowed to be in any part of the building without uh, either a staff member or volunteer with them. And mm-hmm. this got hammered into them every morning. And then one day we were doing something and the fire alarm goes off and we all go running outside. And But turns out props had decided to go and cover what they thought was an intruder alarm sensor in a bit of the property they weren't allowed to be. And it was actually a fire beam. Um Oh, no. The other part that made it even more delightful um, was we'd already had an accidental fire alarm activation that morning. <laughs> so then we had the fire brigade threatening oh, to cut no. us off their emergency <gasps> response list. We had a huge fine. Oh, God. We were all, all kind of outside for like an hour, just like, what happened? We had a very, very good locations team. And when they found out, I'm very glad that I was not on the receiving end of <laughs> the location manager's wrath at that point. Yes, she is a force to be reckoned with and was wonderful. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would not like to be on her bad side. Um, so, you know, it wasn't always that well thought yeah. out. But I guess they were quite keen with what they could and couldn't do. Mm. But that's also, I think, a difference of budget makes, yeah, I think, as I well. See. With different things I've worked with. They were a lot higher budget company. So I think they had the money to do those things. There's other ones where, especially when it is a one day shoot and they're trying to do lots and lots of different things in one day, it doesn't always go that smoothly because they don't have the time or the money. Also, I suppose there's a difference there in the kind of relationship they're likely to build with you. If they're there for one day, say that it's like, you know, even if it it can be for the news or it can be for for a TV show, but if they're there for one day, they're there to get a job done. They're not there to build a good relationship with you. And you would like that to be the case, but they're there to do the job and they've got one day. So I can kind of see Mm. how that's a very different road than we're going to spend three months at your property and yeah, maybe only three of those weeks are actually filming, but, you know, setting up and taking down and all that stuff and prepping stuff. That's a relationship. Like you two have to get along the film crew and the people at the property. You you have to, you have to make friends. Like you have to have a relationship. I guess that's a very different kind of approach, not just in budget, but also in time constraints and what they want out of what they want out of you. Because there were definitely a few things where there was a couple of rooms we hadn't, they had, you know, they'd said they didn't want, um, but then they turned around and were like, if we did want to film in here, <laughs> how easy would that be? And there was a few kind of, uh, no, but then a few moments of, right, okay, how practical is this? Uh, but they were quite good on, if you wanted to film on this next week, and kind of gave us a bit of time frame, because we had two days a week mm. where they weren't on site. Okay. And then there was the odd day where they were filming exterior stuff so we could run about like headless chickens inside, <laughs> which was quite funny because sometimes someone would be still setting up inside. So you'd just be stood watching everything out the window and then you'd get a radio call of, uh, we can see you in the window. Can you move? Oh. <laughs> if you're like, sorry, <laughs> um, which was always quite fun. 
as well, we knew our locations team so well mm. that if we did get called away for a big conservation worry, they could cover for us and we were quite comfortable leaving them in rooms, which was very helpful. That's good. Um, because even with like the volunteers, as much as they know the rooms and the collection, a lot of them have never been on a film set before. Um, again, like you were saying before, with stuff happening so quickly, you don't actually know and they didn't want to put loads of effort into training people up to be able to run the project if you know last minute they turned around and said oh we're not coming after yeah. all because that's always a bit of a yeah. worry something i noted down that's got a number of different topics to it so obviously for large heritage institutions with loads of different properties loads of different kind of areas that are wanted they are in high demand that's what i'm trying to say they're in high demand and however sort of annoying um someone's requirements might be for filming to be able to take place safely they're probably going to agree to it if they've got budget particularly or um you know they're used to it as i was saying earlier but for smaller institutions and museums i imagine it's there's quite a lot of we've got to make it easy and desirable for a place to be to be filmed in order for the sort of mm. you know yeah. museum advocacy um that kind of thing advertisement so i suppose what i'm interested in is the line between how is it how do we make it safe enough for the collection or the property mm. but not too annoying <laughs> or limiting <laughs> to drive people away and just say oh nah actually we're just going to go down the road to this other place um people do scout out locations for a very long time and yes you are probably the ideal choice as in uh, you know if they've if they've chosen you it's probably for a number of reasons it's probably not mm -hmm. super interchangeable and i'm not just thinking of places where you know it has to take place in this place because it it was the home of the individual that's historically portrayed or something you know it could just be that actually it's got it's got the big garden that we need and we can take all these shots in and we've storyboarded it to work in these sorts of rooms and that there's so much prep work that you know it you're probably chosen for a reason and not yeah and and not hugely interchangeable I should think that doesn't mean to be a d to people. You know, it's still, you know, you still gotta, you still gotta. This gotta be give and take on both sides. The number of people I've spoken to in like the last couple of weeks, and you know, people who work in conservation stuff, and I've said, oh, I'm helping, going to do this podcast about filming, and people have gone, oh yeah, I worked on this, this, and this, and it's just like I don't think even within organisations or within specific properties we don't realize what experience people have of doing things like this we don't talk about it yeah because i remember my last job we had netflix um do a recce and it was going to be oh we're going to shoot next week if we shoot and what? then we just never heard anything yeah. again oh. and i remember my boss at the time really worried because she was like none of the team have filming experience and i kind of was like I have it's fine she went oh yeah I forgot you've got that but then with the rest of the team a couple of them were like oh no no but I went and helped this place out with this thing when they were doing oh. that or I went here and did that or you know I wasn't necessarily involved but I was around it happening and actually there's probably a lot more people who do know so if we are I mean it all gets very different with non-disclosure agreements and things like that for properties while stuff is being filmed but afterwards I think there needs to be a bit more sharing of we had this even you know five minute tv advert yeah. or something um, or with Jane saying with a music video, if then another museum goes, oh, actually, this place mentioned that they did something, yeah. they might know. And I think, I don't know if there's a, needs to be a bit more willingness to go out and just talk to people about it and say, you know, because when you guys asked me, I thought there's going to be far more filming conservators who know more than I do. But then I've seen big budget ones and very small ones and then have been around on days when filming's been happening, even if I've not been involved. Yeah. So I still know a bit that I could at least help someone if they didn't know what they were doing you know yeah. if they were completely didn't know where to start mm. i think everyone maybe doesn't recognize how much experience they've got themselves and then be as willing to share it it's super interesting that you say that and two things bring to mind one is that until i talked to kate who is the in the conservator in the interview in a little bit i didn't even know that you know filming conservators were a thing we we actually met at a uh, pathway to accreditation like workshop type thing and you know we all kind of sat in a circle and shared what we did and she was like i work on a filming and stuff like that and i was like whoa that's a thing that's so cool <laughs> um and like never even struck me even though it's obvious when i think about it and the other thing that sprang to mind was that earlier this year in the before times i chaired a conference that was called um sellout and it was about commercial things going on in museums and on heritage sites and both the national trust and english heritage were there and talked about filming on location which was very handy it was super interesting to hear 
people from from both of those organizations talking about the kind of lessons learned and how they do things and the slightly different approaches they have there were so many good points that they raised that I'd never thought about and it was about you know things like the planning and someone said that there was like a two to one to two ratio of like prep film and leave that the filming bit that you're really worried about that's going to be the short bit (laughs) The prep is like almost twice as long. And the prep in this case isn't just the film crew being on site and building false walls or amazing tabletops and getting props in and you decanting the galleries. It's also the (laughs) risk assessments and the talks leading up to it and all of that stuff. The taking things down, leaving, wrapping up, doing any last minute things at at the end. And then obviously putting everything back again is also a huge tail on that production. So the filming is the little bit in the middle, which is also very intense, but it's differently intense from the bits on either side of it. And I thought that was a super interesting thing to learn about and a really good point. And I'm super glad that those people talked about them. Can I make an open request to everyone with filming experience to write about what you've done and your experiences and even maybe more conferences or more sections in conferences where we talk about how to facilitate this stuff. Because I feel like listening to you, Fee, and listening to Jenny's experiences of, you know, the conference and all of this, it seems like a sort of secret side of <laughs> of um, heritage outreach that we don't talk very much about because of I don't I don't know I suppose why maybe people feel like they had to I don't know compromise or that they just don't see it as a piece of outreach but it really is because you've got so many thousands of different audiences watching something going that was a cool show not really interested in history but I might go to this property because of it and suddenly they've been introduced into heritage where they just may not have been that fussed about it before and it's that's fantastic i mean the the title of the conference was was sell out so i feel like you know that (laughs) kind of gives you the idea that maybe this is something that we feel is a bit dirty making money in museums and heritage sites is still we need to just bloody get over that don't we? i know it's just part of the job yeah exactly and like the conference wasn't just about filming for example that was one of the examples you know like commercial enterprises in museums and stuff that's totally a thing you know like most of us have cafes and shops for goodness sake so it's not Mm -hmm. you know yeah you you know you hire yeah exactly weddings in gallery three or whatever exactly right (laughs) so so you know it was it was about kind of embracing that side and and talking about the pros and cons and all that stuff and what we we can learn from each other so you know it was it was a great idea and a great topic and i loved it that i think that's part of the reason where people are still a bit like oh it's a bit dirty to take money Mm, (laughs) and it's just like no it's not so there's that side and then there's also i think the side that we've already mentioned like non-disclosure agreements and stuff like that where people have have signed off on not saying certain things because no spoilers right they don't want to ruin something that oh they they filmed this amazing (laughs) film and it's going to be about bloody blah and it's going to be so cool and you know ahead of time because actually they want a big premiere and you know they want to do the hollywood things like that sort of thing right and it's like fair enough that's film industry but you know once that's released you know you're good to go you're usually allowed to capitalize on that and you're allowed to talk about those experiences and that sort of thing you know often non-disclosure agreements are about very specific things or are in the run-up and during production and like that i can totally be on board with but you know afterwards you are usually allowed to share depending on what you've signed, of course. And we should share. For me, it's reverse. You know how you said this might bring people to Heritage who don't care about Heritage? For me, it's reverse. I might watch a show that I don't give a shit about because it was filmed in a location <laughs> that I really like. <laughs> That's it. It brings it to life, doesn't it? it on, on both sides of things. If you are interested in Heritage and you, you know, Heritage buildings and things like that, it brings more sort of realism to a story or, you know, that side of art I guess and storytelling and if you're really into your media and your art storytelling but not so much heritage then it brings the actual the realism of the past to you is that such that's not too hippie a thing to say is it no realism of the past we'll go with it we'll go with that vibe All you've got to look at is it's, what, 25 years of anniversary of the filming of Pride and Prejudice at Lime mm. Park at the moment. Yes. Um, they have a cake, life-size cake of Mr. Darcy. <laughs> what? <laughs> I didn't see that. 
It's, oh, look at it on Instagram. It's incredible. I went there two, oh, about two, three weeks ago now, I went up to the Peak District and went to Chatsworth and Lyme. And I greatly enjoyed how much of both of their shops are full of Jane Austen memorabilia. So I was slightly sad that I missed the Colin Firth cake um, <laughs> at Lyme. But I mean, 25 years, I think you can blag this as long as you like. Oh, to yeah. Support oh, that definitely. But then it's also communicating Jane Austen, who is such a fantastically important figure in our history. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's great. And I think there there is something to be said for, you know, milking this sort of stuff. Like, I, th- I think that is a good oh, idea. Totally. Filming at locations, you know, wherever they are, it will be associated with a certain amount of stress and risk assessment. And like there are, there are risks involved, not just to the collection, but it can be risks to reputation or, you know, association stick. So it might be that, you know, if, if, you know, if you do a film about a particular individual and that individual later on falls out of favor, you're still associated with that mm. individual. And, you know, this, that that's a risk. It's a risk that you're pissing off your visitors by not being open because <laughs> you're filming for three weeks and people turn up and go, well, I was going to go to that. I want to get to the tea room. And it's like, sorry, it's closed. And we can't tell you why other than it's filming because we're not allowed to say. And then people get pissy because, you know, they'd probably be more excited if you said it was for Game of Thrones. But you know you can't say so they're just told it's shut sorry you have to come back another time sorry but there are so many benefits as well and it's not just you're being given money or you're more famous but we've already touched on the fact that this might introduce more people to your property or your museum but it's also about free advertisement that you can buy into a franchise that you can then plug and tourism that you can get out of it tap that does Fee have an example here? Yeah, well, Northern Ireland has very much grown with the Game of Thrones industry. Mm. Um, I went to secondary school there. I know my strong Northern Irish accent really gets <laughs> that way. Um, but I, I flew home about two years ago and over the Welcome to Belfast sign at the airport, they had Welcome to Westeros. <laughs> Amazing. I never got into it because I got too distracted in the first episode, location spotting. Um, <laughs> because they filmed a lot around the Mourns and that's where I did Duke of Ed and I could find on Google Maps really obscure parts of the countryside where they were so that ruined it for me I then couldn't get into the show because I was far too distracted but the number of signs where it's very close to Game of Thrones font but not quite the Game of Thrones font (laughs) what can we get away with (laughs) and like the number of archery things and sets almost made to look like a set that are still going of places that were used in season one and they're still not they're still blacking it now how how many places can you sit in a replica iron throne <laughs> literally so many i think there was one in the airport at one point wow i mean i don't blame them it's a yeah. great idea but um it is quite funny that's just what the whole country is now going for and and i think one of my mum's favorite uh, filming story is there was a rihanna music video filmed when the vmas were in belfast and it was in a tree um on the side of the road to where my parents live and my mum still phones me every time a branch comes off that tree <laughs> and tells me that's so fantastic (laughs) they talked about it on radio one the other day this must have been like a good 10 years ago because the she was filming this music video and then she undid her shirt and was dancing about in a bikini top and the farmer came out and told her to stop because he wasn't comfortable with what she was wearing (laughs) what that's phenomenal it's just known in my family as the rihanna tree and like anything happens to it i want to hear rihanna's side of the story (laughs) does anyone know her (laughs) I thought it only happened with my family, but yeah, I heard it on Radio 1 the other day. So clearly it's still, my parents are not the only people still going on about this trip. Absolutely phenomenal. So we've talked about crews. What's it like working with actors and the famous people on the set asking to do the things? Do you ever get kind of, obviously you won't be allowed to say names, um, but do you ever have actors being artistic and wanting to do artistic things that wasn't in the plan? Um, I don't think... We ever really did that. We did not speak to the actors. Uh, <laughs> we weren't really allowed to speak to the actors. Some of our volunteers fell in love with one of the stun- one of the stand-ins. Perfect. <laughs> and they didn't care about the actor anymore. They were only interested in the stand-in. <laughs> and he came in on a day off, and the volunteer then came in and did them their own private tour. Oh, right. I think <laughs> some of the stand-ins. I don't know if it was one of the stand-ins, or maybe someone from the crew. Um, who actually wanted to see the whole building and see it kind of as it normally mm. is, uh, which was quite cool um, to get them to show show them that, really. Um, but other than that, we've... No, I guess it's just what the director's telling them to to do, really. Mm. So you've never had to tell Maggie Smith that she's not allowed to like, <laughs> sit on that? 
<laughs> no, I had lots of issues with extras. Ah. Um, and not actual issues, nothing major. But as I mentioned earlier, we had a massacre scene. So there were lots of people with, um, you know, fake knives sticking out of their heads. Wow. <laughs> quite comical but when we didn't realize what was happening to start off with because you don't get told anything and you don't really get the shoot lists so all of a sudden you're kind of guarding a room and all these people start coming in with like knives and axes hanging out their backs um and you're just like what is going on um and they kept the plot you know so close to chest i knew what it was but that was about as far as my involvement went and it didn't mean anything to me it wasn't like you know if it was a Pride and Prejudice remake, I would know everything. <laughs> so, you know, uh, Jenny probably wouldn't, but, you know. <laughs> no, I'd just be like, I have no um, idea what's happening. It's like me watching The Crown where I'm like, I'm just I'm just here for the ride because I don't know your history. So I'm like, what <laughs> <Yeah>. Amazing. <laughs> but yeah, we just had a lot of them like leaning on pillars um, and we had to continually go up and say, oh, sorry, do you mind not leaning on that? Because uh, you're getting fake blood. Ooh, yeah. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> So we ended up with a radio call one day where someone radioed us on a different day saying, oh, what are you up to at the moment? She radioed back, just being like, just cleaning blood off a pillar, it's fine. <laughs> and I had to then clarify quite quickly that it was fake blood from the set and not any random person's blood. I was going to say some of them forgot to duck going through doors a couple of times, which was oh. funny. You kind of see them going through the door and someone being like, no, 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 you need to duck, you need to duck. And I'd be like, oh, I forgot I've got this, you know, six inch knife on top of my head. Um, <laughs> been so many projects that different people have done and we're really lucky to have spoken to a couple of people about these projects and I'd also like to say at this point that if you have your own project that you've worked on we'd really like to hear of it because it's just as we were saying earlier just another way of sharing and getting your voice out there of the different experiences that you've got and stuff. So we've got a couple of interviews now um, from a couple of conservators that have got some really fantastic and quite exciting filming experience as well as Fee has. So let's listen to them. Today I'm speaking to a special guest. So would you like to introduce yourself, please, and tell us a bit about the project that we're going to be, going to be talking about? My name is Wendy Somerville Woodyus, and I'm a conservator at the National Railway Museum. I've been there for the last five years. And the project we're going to talk about is when a film called Victorian Abdul was filmed at the National Railway Museum in the Royal Carriages, Queen Victoria's Carriage and King Edward's Carriage. And this was in 2017, and I was part of the team who prepared these carriages for filming. That's so exciting. And am I right in thinking that this is significant because it's an accessioned object, particularly? Yes, it's accessioned. And the carriage itself, the interior has never changed. Wow. Queen Victoria's time. Queen Victoria's carriage was built in 1869 by the Wolverton Railway Works, by the London and North Western Railway. And actually, it was originally two carriages. So Queen Victoria used to move from one compartment to the next. And when she needed to do that, they had to stop the the whole train, which was quite a problem. So what happened is that in 1895, it was converted into one carriage, which she really uh, loved. So it was quite, you know, revolutionary in its um, engineering and its technology. Uh, It was also the first carriage to have a lavatory, which she actually never used, but it did have one. Uh, It had two, actually. And then she also... Uh, it was the first carriage to have electricity, which she didn't like either. So that was <laughs> so. But what the lovely thing is is that you do get a flavour of a personality because the day room is a lovely, beautiful blue silk, golden silk fittings, and a, a gilded clock, and a quilted ceiling. So it's quite soundproofed and cosy. Her bedroom is has a red damask, and the lady waiting room is is a, a golden yellow silk and damask. So each compartment is, you know, really quite vibrant for the Victorian times and for her personality, especially when she was mourning at this time. So it's, you know, you I guess you get to kind of see an intimate side of her through this carriage. So that's why it's so significant. And it's significant because it's a personality and significant because um, of its technological uh, kind of evolution. And it's significant because the Wolverton Railway Works, you know, loved it so much. They they hid it away from um, from her son, um, King Edward VII, who wanted it burnt. And they put so much work and effort and craftsmanship into this carriage that, you know, um, they, they had to hide it and, and preserve it for the, for the future. King Edward's carriage, this is also built by the London North Western Railway and uh, the Wolverton Works. They did the Royal Carriage carriages at this time and that was built in uh, 1903 
and it's it's remarkably different. It's, it sits opposite Queen Victoria's carriage, so you can kind of see the the, the mother and son relationship and these reflecting these two carriages. And he was really into yacht design, so his carriage is based on, on some uh, parts of a yacht, basically of a royal yacht. So there's lots of mahogany in this carriage, and it and it's very clever. So the way that the wooden panels are designed and the the kind of quite narrow and high so the carriage feels higher and loftier than it actually is and it's and it's large and it you know it traveled he often broke speed records in his carriage you know oh, wow. really technology yeah he absolutely loved it so that's where they're where they're both significant because you see their personalities and these reflecting these carriages and uh, and that's why we love them so much so in terms of important significant original conditions this one's quite high up on the list and uh, you had to have loads of film crews and everyone going through it yes we did normally if they could have had control they would have you would have had like 12 or 13 people in one compartment oh my god yeah (laughs) (laughs) not a good idea so we really restricted the numbers of people that could go in so it was the actors the lighting department so one person with lighting and a camera that was handheld so there wasn't any rails for it to to go on and most of the lighting was actually outside the carriage on the platform so the lighting was actually through the windows so we allowed only six people in each carriage in each compartment or each scene at a time and one conservator always in the carriage at the same time keeping keeping an eye on things how did you prepare the object in advance and what did you have to consider and what was your brief from the filming team uh, the brief was that they wanted to film three scenes, one in Queen Victoria's uh, day room, which is where her sofa is and her writing desk. She used to write a diary every day. One scene was in the bedroom uh, in Queen Victoria's carriage and one scene was in King Edward's carriage. So firstly, we had a site visit from them. And we also had an agreement with the museum in the first place because the museum had to close half its site for three days. And yours is a big site, isn't it? It's a, quite a big impact for the museum itself financially. So that had production company had to cover the costs of how much money we'd lose from closing the museum, as well as a fee. And, you know, whether there's enough staff to actually to prepare the museum for this. So that was quite a big decision. There was quite a risk as well to the collection itself, but it is balanced off against good publicity and a good project for the museum so there was a, a lot of in-depth conversations whether this whether we could do this or not with you know a steer from conservation and collections care in the first place so this was agreed and it was agreed eight to nine months ahead of time we had a walkthrough with the production company we had long discussions with them they did a lot of filming of English Heritage and Natural Trust and the, the director Stephen Freer he has done a lot of historical dramas and films in the past so you know they're really familiar and experience of working with historical um, institutions so you know it was kind of gave us confidence in them as well so we met the director met the producer and talked to them what they could and couldn't do basically you know if you want Queen Victoria to line a bed well we're going to have to remove all of the furnishings and upholstery in there and you have to put your own bedding in um, if you you know she can't sit on the sofa because all the original upholstery in Queen Victoria's carriage has a, has been um, conserved by textile conservation about uh, eight or nine years ago. It has a really fine layer of um, netting on. Um, it's silk and it's so old that if you know if you touch it, it can split. Um, and we told them basically any furniture that was movable, we'll we will remove from the carriage um, and they could bring in you know furniture of their own. We also said, you know, obviously I've mentioned before that there's a limited amount of people that can be in these compartments. The lighting has to be LED lighting, no ultraviolet light from a you know like a tungsten light bulb that they could use as much lighting as the carriage would normally receive for the day itself. So we calculated how many lux hours it could actually have. And they discussed that the, the film itself would be a closed set. So a closed set is where, you know, you have lots of screens. Because we had the public walking around at the time. And the staff as well, we had screens everywhere because, you know, we had like Judy Dench and Eddie Izzard, et cetera, there. So it's such a high profile that they wanted kind of lots of privacy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we had to prepare other carriages in the station hall, not just the royals, to stop people looking through those windows that could then look straight through into Queen Victoria's carriage. Wow, that sounds like so much to consider, but it's excellent that you actually were given a really substantial amount of time to do it in. It was good because, you know, we didn't have to think of solutions on the day to any problems because it was really meticulously planned. 
Um, so, for example, right uh, early on in the discussions, they asked if they could use a smoke machine, and we just said no. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so, what they did instead is that they had these huge lights, and then they also had like pieces of cardboard that they were flat to create shadows to make it look as though the the, the carriage is in motion, which was really effective and simple, but it, it worked. Wow. Yeah, so it looked like shadows of trees, and you know that were uh, moving alongside the carriage. What were your roles during filming then? I mean, we just concentrated on, on the carriages and the collection. But my manager at the time was the point of contact. So any questions were directed at her and myself and my other colleagues. We were there to observe and keep an eye out on the collection. And we would be in the carriages doing the scenes as well. Uh, we had a student as well, a conservation student, and he was on the floor. So if there any questions on the floor um, and he was keeping an eye on, on the carriage from the outside. And how did that affect the dynamics between the different members of the team then? Were there any moments when you had to say, nope, nope, stop, stop there? And then did that sort of affect their kind of behaviour and, and attitude to you? No, I mean, there was one um, scene where so Eddie Izzard was, uh, he was method acting. So method acting is King Edward, or Prince Edward. And there's one scene where King Edward and, and Queen Victoria fall out, basically. And, you know, you keep treating me like a child. <laughs> uh, he's about to slam the door in the carriage. So, ah. yeah. so my manager's like, no, stop. You can't do that. This is original, so don't do that. And the producers, you know, reiterated this message, and there was no problem. And he did it, but it, he's a bit sheepish as well. But you know, <laughs> he's really well behaved. Everyone, there's, there's no problem. And people really enjoyed the carriage. Is not nothing beats a real thing, does it? So what I think. You know, once you respect that space you're in, you know, the collection in a way solved its own problem. You know, I think if it was a really freshly made carriage, you would just see it as well. You know, you can just fix it and repair it. But, oh, this is the real McCoy. If you damage this, we will never be able to to do that. That's amazing. And what a spectacularly good story as well, working with Eddie Izzard. And I suppose that's that's a really nice way of looking at it as the actors and the film and crew really respecting where they are and understanding and I also have a lot of you know well done for staying firm and confident in talking to people obviously who are also quite famous and telling them do not do that and you know behave yourself <laughs> basically no different to if there's, if there's an event on the museum mm. in a collection area you, you talk to say the events manager exactly the same as Eddie is and said you know just be aware and you know, this t- your dining table is close to a carriage and it needs to be further back and, and explain why it has to, to be further back. You know, it's not, I find that if you just say no to someone, if you just say you can't do that, you don't explain why. And they don't understand and they, they don't respect your decision in a way because they don't understand it. Where if you say, oh, you know, the reason you have to be this far away or the reason we're putting down Corex and you have to walk early on the Corex, you're not allowed to touch the carpet or you're not allowed to peel away the calico from the carpet. <laughs> for these reasons and then they're like oh okay oh that's actually quite interesting okay and then they you know they respect what you what you do as a job and we respect what they did as well it was very interesting for us to see how how they would film a scene and actually it's quite nice to see uh, the compartment in queen victoria's carriage and king Edward's carriage in the time that it was set in you know they kind of Oh, the costumes brought alive and the characters brought alive what it could have been like when this carriage was in service. So it was it was really interesting. Thank you so much, Wendy, for talking to us about this. This sounds like the most exciting project um, and a really fantastic set of experiences. It was great. It was great. And I, and I do have to mention as well that, you know, it, OK, it took a lot of time, a lot of preparation but it did give us opportunities. So when we did remove the furniture from the carriages, you know, we we had a chance to condition check it and get a really deep clean, um, and look at the carpets really carefully, and you know, really understand how these carriages function and how we can care for them. So it was, it, you know, improve and keep improving. Okay, because we could have an opportunity to have a closer look at uh, the interiors of these carriages. So yeah, it was absolutely brilliant, and uh, thank you very much for asking about our, our experiences. Thank you. 
So today we're talking about filming and uh, I'm here with Kate. Kate, would you like to introduce yourself and what you do? My name is Kate Burtonshaw and I'm a freelance filming conservator and I work for institutions like the National Trust and English Heritage and for private clients. So you and I actually met when we went to like a pathway to accreditation clinic. And before I met you, I just didn't know that there were conservators who work with filming, which is this has opened a whole new world to me which is why we're doing this episode (laughs) how how did you get started with this um I think I was kind of lucky I sort of almost fell into it by accident I was in the right place at the right time so I've been a regional conservator of the National Trust and then gone to do a two-year resurfacing project at a castle in Wales which again for the National Trust and then when that came to a natural end colleague approached me and said I'm desperate for more filming conservators to join the small team they already had would I be interested but it was all kind of freelance work so then I took the plunge to become a freelancer basically so uh, yeah it was just uh, lucky but now there's quite a I think it's about 13 of us now on the books there's, there's a big team of us now but at the time it was only like me and like two other colleagues so wow um, filming in the National Trust really took off about 2004 and then just started to build and build and build and they quickly realized that they needed a dedicated department to it you know with a, a filming management team and then with a conservator who was more dedicated to it so it's it's grown and grown and grown and it has in other institutions since I think as well. That is a really cool job. It is a very cool job, I have to say. Yeah, you can't fault it, really. (laughs) So what sort of projects have you been involved in? Like, you don't have to name drop if you don't want to, but like, what what sort of things? Is it like documentaries or films or... No, movies and TV. Lots of things that people will love, like Pulled Up um, and um, Downton Abbey. I did a Downton Abbey Christmas (gasps) special one year. And then things like The Crown. I've been involved in three series of The Crown quite extensively, which is really fantastic. I love that show. As as previously established in this episode, episode that is the only period of drama I really watch other than Downton Abbey oh, really? <laughs> like fantastic <laughs> it's very gripping I have to say yeah. and tend, the more you see it the more you want to get involved in it so yeah it's really good um, and then I've, I've I got a random opportunity to be part of a sort of superhero movie so it was um, uh, Marvel Doctor Strange because normally the stuff that you know the stuff we do is more sort of bodice rippers and you know a yeah. drama really. yeah. to be involved in something a bit more uh, you know uh, superhero it was really great I didn't really expect superheroes to come up here uh, yeah I, I was very much more thinking of the bodice <laughs> rippers <laughs> No, that was wonderful because that was at um, Exeter College, Oxford. So it was a completely independent job. Um, so I spent sort of three weeks in Oxford, living in Oxford and managing this project, which was quite exciting. We were opening a portal to another dimension in Exeter College, Oxford. So that was quite <laughs> Well, quite I good. mean, that's one heck of a thing. What's been the kind of biggest challenge working like on set and with film crews and that sort of thing? Like- one of the biggest challenges, so not everyone will totally understand the way films work, but basically if you go into a a property or a building you will have um, a sort of an advanced crew who were the art department the construction department and they will go in and, and set dress and so they will build a set that the designers have created and so they will come and say a national trust property or a, a museum or gallery and sometimes they want to use a lot of the objects in there but they will also bring in their own props as well their own furniture their own curtains and then when the actual filming crew turn up say a week or two weeks later they will simply not know what is real and what is not so they will sit on everything they will put their coffee you know attempt to put their coffee down on everything they will wander around an institution you know, and and they don't know so then your job is to try and remember you know especially because often I get parachuted into properties I don't know the content so then I've got to try and remember everything that we've agreed can be used and then remember that other things are not you know the other things are props and they're, they're, they're not part of the collection and then you've got to try and desperately make sure that nobody sits on the wrong chair or takes the wrong cushion away to you know the costume department or whatever it is it's so that I think that's one of the biggest challenges you've really got to try and memorize or take loads of photographs of everything so you can kind of distinguish between the two things and then make sure those items don't get damaged or moved too much or handled too much you know I hadn't really considered that. That's the, it's like the illusion is complete. They just assume everything is a set. Of course, it often isn't. So as much as you can, you try and advise that people take, you know, take out objects. But if they really can't find a 17th century chest, they desperately want to use yours because they just can't get something to replace it. Then, you know, sometimes that is obviously agreed sometimes, so long as it ideally stays in place and they don't put loads of stuff on it or someone doesn't sit on it. But yeah. <laughs> try to manage those aspects can be quite tricky what would you say to a conservator who's been asked to supervise some sort of filming in their galleries or property what would what advice would you give them film crews are like ants they will spread 
And so if they come for an initial um, initial few meetings and recce's and, you know, the footprint of the filming has been agreed, what rooms they're going to use, when they turn up on site, they will always want more. Can we just do a shot in that doorway? Can we, we need a space for an actor, right? You know, it's a completely separate space so they can do their vocal warm-up. And suddenly you've lost your office, you've lost the ladies' loose, you've lost your staff room. And so whatever you prep for, they will want more space. You sometimes have got to be careful that it could be nowhere for you to retreat to in the middle of a big shoot. You know, you need a space for staff, especially property staff, you know, to or museum, gallery staff, whatever, to, to retreat to. They need one space that they can call theirs where they're not going to get badgered and they can have a cup of coffee. But even that gets lost sometimes. And it's really important to try and fight back and make sure you hold on to those spaces. But that, that my biggest advice is just don't concede too much, <laughs> oddly. <laughs> if that, was, that sounds really strange. But yeah, if you don't lock doors, they will just wander off into other bits. And suddenly they're like sitting on a priceless chair because they've just wandered into a room. So, But you can't have eyes in the back of your head. So, um, no, yes, no, exactly. It's, yeah, it's like herding sheep sometimes. Herding so, yeah. <laughs> cats, more like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Finally, I'd like to ask you, what's been the best thing about working with filming as a conservator and would you recommend it? I would definitely recommend it. Um, it can be very challenging because it's very, very long days, especially on the bigger shoots. And you can be doing or you can be doing all night shoots you know, and it could involve a lot of travel. But um, it is a wonderful job. But also it can be when they're doing take after take, also be prepared for the challenge of it, it can also be incredibly dull at times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think people think it's all glamorous and all dead exciting. But no, sometimes when you're standing there at 4 a.m. in the pouring rain on a bridge outside in a garden, you know, you, you wish you were in bed. Yeah, why am I here? <laughs> but I would definitely recommend it because you also see amazing sunrises, sunsets. You get to see properties when there's nobody else there, wild deer or something prancing across the park, you know. So there are real advantages to this job so oh my goodness the catering oh, some of my best projects I remember because of the food over almost over and above like the actors or the people you met on set Amazing. <laughs> sorry I joke but it's true <laughs> And sometimes you're only involved for like a week and it's a huge project. But, you know, the, some things I've been involved in very extensively and you feel really proud, you know. Yeah. Oh. Of what you've, yes. And you realise you've been part of something really special that's really engages people or excites people, you know, thrills people when they watch it. And it's that joy of knowing that you've been part of and being part of a sort of family and seeing it then transposed onto the screen is, is, is yeah, you feel really proud, I suppose. That's a fantastic thing to end on. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Kate. So Jenny, we did a little bit of a distanced film night the other night, didn't we? We did, yeah. So we both watched a film that was part of Open City Documentary Festival, which is not something I was familiar with before. Me neither. And the film was called Those That At A Distance Resemble Another. Let's just pause for a moment and appreciate that that's an incredibly artsy title. <laughs> right? <laughs> it was directed by someone called Sarah Jessica Rindland, uh, and it's from 2019. The reason we watched it was that it features conservators and conservation. And uh, because this was like an online film festival, it was only available between the 9th of September and the 12th of September. So it, it was like a time limited thing and it cost three quid to rent. But yeah, so we, we both watched it and uh, I thought we'd sit down and have share some thoughts on it. Like, So I want to start by saying I felt really, really hip watching it. Like, you know, going yeah. onto the website and yeah, I'm going to watch a... I'm going to watch an art film. Yeah. Though I didn't know it was an art film, really. Because I didn't, I thought I'm going to go into this blind. I don't want to know anything about the film or the director or anything. It's described as a mesmerizing film. Oh. They are not wrong about that. Like it is mesmerizing. <laughs> no, but like because it's a documentary festival, I really had no concept of what I was going to watch. And I think somewhere in my mind, I kind of went... It's going to be like a David Attenborough thing. What, what are we doing here? <laughs> um, I was expecting, I was expecting documentary as well. Yeah, and I have to say, in the first little bit, I don't know, maybe five minutes, I thought, oh, have we got the wrong type of conservation again? Because it was all about monkeys and trees, and and it was just you know stills of like forests so what what we should say is that like it it started with a bit of an introduction to like thanks for watching the film festival uh, and this is what you're going to be seeing and the the person who 
kind of presented it uh did say that it was like ecological and museological conservation and i was like ooh, i don't know how i feel about having those two things to get confused so much conservationist and conservator get confused a lot i don't know how i feel about mingling those two but Actually, I would say that there was very little of the ecological side of mm-hmm. things, but it did start that way. So it started, as you say, with kind of a jungly scene and, uh, you know, primates and stuff. And I was like, I really don't know what I'm watching now. Part of me was panicking that I was watching the wrong thing. And then secondly, I kind of felt like um, I felt like I was sitting in a gallery and I was watching some sort of art film that was projected on a wall, you know, like you sometimes do in art galleries. Absolutely, it- yeah. So basically, as soon as I realised that it was an art film, I was like, all oh, right, I can do art film. But that stopped me from judging too harshly the confusing nature of some of the scenes. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Because they, obviously we all know there's a bit of a danger of miscommunicating conservation. Mm. But that wasn't, this wasn't about that. No, it wasn't. The images were conservation and conservation adjacent and they were a lot of the time shot, I suppose, in order to be interesting images of hands at work. Yeah, so it it was hand porn. Yeah, basically. Like there were a lot of shots of hands working and they were doing a lot of different things. Sometimes they were like full people, like people putting away objects. Mm -hmm. But there were a lot of extreme close-ups and uh, we should say that this, this was not only about conservation but it was also sometimes about the process of making a replica of something mm-hmm. so there was a lot of like a craft aspect to this that i found really appealing as an artist i really enjoyed that the kind of explanation came at the end yes like i sat through the film and then it kind of fades out and i was just thinking well that was beautiful to behold but i'm not really sure what i was seeing like i had a lot of feelings but like no explanations mm. to any of the feelings and no explanations to any of the scenes. However, then at the at the very end, there's just like kind of rapid text across the screen that kind of describes... Well, no, it states who did something, where they were, and what it was they did. Mm-hmm. So it's something like the curator, blah 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 at blah 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 institution, putting away tusks. And I was like, oh, oh, I see. So, th- so there was like a credit sequence, you could say, but it was also the explanation for what you'd been seeing. Yes. I think it really tied things together really well. It tied together that there was an enormous amount of expertise that he'd been seeing. And there mm-hmm. were reasons for the things that he was seeing. But it, it's like you couldn't see it in the moment. Even, And I mean, I say that as a conservator. Like, I do some of these things that, you know, those hands were doing. But because I didn't know the context, it was really difficult for me to see what what it was achieving which sounds strange. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think I was distracted quite a lot by the not knowing. Yeah. Because we are so familiar. I think maybe we both watched it thinking we would know what was going on. But a lot of the things were quite abstract. So I was thinking, oh, what are these replicas for? What's this for? What's, you know... Yeah, what am I seeing? Why is that being done in that way kind of thing? Exactly, what am I seeing? (laughs) I think one of my most vivid memories is that, because I was slightly ahead of you in watching it, um, was that you sent me a message at one point about what is that woman doing to the smoke sponge? (laughs) (laughs) And I laughed, I laughed so much. There's this one sequence that it's... it's, Oh my gosh. It's hands cutting a piece of smoke sponge with very blunt scissors. And it's like the noise is is the noise of smoke sponge being cut by blunt scissors but amped up oh, to gosh. high heaven yeah and it's so interesting to kind of hear it's it's a bizarre thing because you know the sound so well if you've ever done it and your reaction made me think of here's someone who always goes and gets a clean scalp and has never had to do oh the my field. god yes well no no because i have done that in the because field i've totally massacred a smoke sponge with blunt scissors <laughs> because i've had nothing else and then ripped it at the end because i'm tired of it like <laughs> I've done that. And so have I. I have done that as well. <laughs> but I think every... And there weren't very many examples of this. But my attitude was, why would you have someone film you do that? Like, I feel <laughs> I feel ashamed when I'm doing it on my own, you know? <laughs> this, is, this is really hard to convey if you haven't seen it. And I hope there is a way for you to go and see this because I would recommend that you do if you can relax enough to be okay with this not being an Attenborough documentary and this being an <laughs> art film. Then I would totally recommend that you go and see it because it's mesmerizing. 
The sound design was so interesting in this entire mm. thing. It was unsettling. Huge kudos for the Foley work, I have to say. It, so it was extreme close-ups and that kind of weird color grading. And then mm. voices were muted. There was no voiceover whatsoever explaining what was going on. But you did hear voices no. sometimes. And the voices were mostly people having conversations. It felt mm-hmm. like you were eavesdropping on not intimate moments because that's not the kind of conversations you have in a lab environment but it was unstaged it was unscripted and it was like overhearing uh, people having a cup of tea together because someone was talking about like what their kid watched on tv or like you know it it was so (laughs) human and normal i guess it's the same thing as people noises at a cafe like you could hear what someone's saying but it doesn't mean anything to you it's just kind of nice to be there it's atmosphere Mm -hmm. and Mm. and i really quite like that but that bit was really like turned down compared to the noises of everything else which was really amped up so noises Mm -hmm. of tools or things being cut or cleaned like they those were really amped up and it created a fantastic and strange ambience (laughs) Once I'd read the interview, I started seeing it more sort of as like recognizing aspects of conservation as a in a sort of friendly kind of way, like yeah. recognizing old friends on TV. Yeah. Like, oh, look, Tyvek kind yes. of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a familiarity, but I also enjoyed that it wasn't all taking place in, in one location. It was across several countries yes the languages were the different languages were really interesting they were it wasn't trying to tell people about conservation it was more looking at conservators and replica makers it was more of a sensory experience in yes. some ways uh, weirdly i felt like the thing that it kind of conveyed without saying anything was expertise like these are hands that know what they're doing without mm-hmm. it being perfection, without it being with like a goal that you knew about. I really enjoyed it. It was a breath of fresh air. So did you enjoy it? I did, actually. I think I didn't enjoy the first five minutes when I was still confused. And then <laughs> I calmed down. <laughs> I think it isn't for everyone, but nothing ever is. I think on that front, I would say I both enjoyed it and didn't enjoy it. If you can catch it again, if there is a way to see it again, then then do. We'll post on links to any relevant information about it. And uh, yeah. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Fiona White, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jen Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about testing new materials. In the meantime, check out our website at theseawood.show, tweet us at theseawoodpodcast, or email us on theseawoodpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. My cat has decided that she wants to snack. So she's in the kitchen with me and her little tag is clattering against the plate. Can you hear it? Oh, yeah. Now that you mention it, there's a little clink, clink, clink. Elder! <laughs> no, she's eaten her crunchies, man. She will not be stopped. Good crunchies. <laughs>